Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. On December 29, 1890, more than 150 Sioux men, women, and children were massacred by U.S. soldiers at Wounded Knee Creek in South Dakota. For many, that atrocity marks the end of Native American history. Anthropologist David Troyer chooses to start his history at that moment. His book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present, does include the important history of genocide, family separation, re-education, unfair laws and unfairly enforced laws, rampant discrimination. But more importantly, he focuses on the resilience and resourcefulness of Native people who have survived and maintained their culture against all odds. David Troyer is on the line with me now. Hello, David. Hi, Charity. How you doing? Good. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. And tell me first a little bit about you. You are Ojibwe, and you grew up, of course, knowing that about yourself, knowing at least a little bit about your culture. How did you think about being Ojibwe when you were growing up? (laughs) I mean, I'm Ojibwe. I grew up on the Leech Lake Reservation, you know, my tribe, where my family's from. Um, You know, and like a lot of kids growing up, wherever they're growing up, I didn't think much about it except... uh, I want to get away. But I would like to return to your introduction where you introduced me as an anthropologist, which is just factually not quite true. I studied it as an undergraduate and as a grad student, but I've never taught it. I've never been a practicing anthropologist. All right. Well, I'm sorry about that. Also, novelist uh, is another one of your monikers as well. Um, So when you start this history in 1890, um, you chose that moment. Because the massacre at Wounded Knee is a part of history that a lot of people know about. A lot of people know about it because of a book that came out in the 1970s, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, that has been in print ever since. And it's a book that opened a lot of people's eyes and minds to really the the atrocities that had been committed against Native people in this country. Tell me about when you first read that book. Right. So when I grew up, I mean, it seemed like that book was everywhere, that it was in everyone's home, traveling around and visiting folks. When I was a kid, you'd always see uh, three or four books in everyone's house. You'd see the Bible, you'd see the J.C. Penney catalog, you'd see Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee and Vine Deloria Jr.'s God is Red. Um, <laughs> you'd see those four books everywhere. And I, but I never read it um, until I got to college and I was far from home and I was missing my family, I was missing my reservation, I was missing my tribe, and I was missing being in the only place where I'm part of the majority, which for a lot of Native people, um, you know, it doesn't happen all that often out and about in America. And so I, I read Bray My Heart at Wounded Knee by Dee Brown sometime when I was in college, and I remember having so many conflicting feelings about it. On one hand, you're right to point out that Dee Brown was was a fierce advocate for, for the rights of Native people, and he was an advocate um, for for our history, for our importance in in and for the country. And so, I felt I felt 
acknowledged and, and uplifted in on one hand by his book, but on the other hand, I felt completely silenced and almost as though I was being killed all over again when he wrote in the introduction, this book is about the Plains Wars. I start in the 1850s and I end in the 1890s at the massacre at Wounded Knee Creek, where, and now I'm quoting, the culture and civilization of the American Indian was destroyed. And he goes on um, in that introduction um, to say, so if you happen to travel to a modern Indian reservation and see the poverty and the hopelessness and the squalor, perhaps by reading this book, you will understand why. So on one hand, I felt, I felt lifted up, and, and on the other hand, I felt, I felt cut down because I wasn't dead, and, and my, my family wasn't dead, and my, my community wasn't, and my tribe isn't, and we still had our government, we still had our sovereignty, we still had our culture and our religion, all of which I was I was raised in, and um, but that wasn't reflected in his story or by extension the story that America likes to tell about us. That story is the story of our death. You were in college. You were away from home. You were having these complicated feelings and complicated thoughts. What did that make you want to do? I mean, you know, initially, it made me want to write fiction. Um, I wanted to write novels with fully realized Indian characters who were, you know, caught up in the, you know, and carried along on the waves of their own lives. I, I wanted to help people imagine other realities for us. But having written four, five novels, that, that wasn't sufficient anymore. I got embroiled in conversations all the time. And Native people, I think, um, all over the country have the same conversation over and over again. And the conversation goes something like, yes, I'm Native, and, and yes, we still exist, and no, casinos don't determine the shape of my life, and yeah, it's bad, but it's not as bad as you think. Um, there's good things, too. It was that same conversation over and over again. And whenever I had those conversations, I wanted to be able to reach and grab a book from the shelf and say, you know what, instead of just having this conversation with me yet again, why don't you read this book first? But there was no single book to reach for. There were, there were lots of good books about us and by us, but no single book that, that looked at and took on what we've been up to for the past 128 years after the point at which we were to have died. And so, as, as Toni Morrison says, um, if there's a book you want to read and you can't find it, it's up to you to write it. And so I, I took her at her word and I wrote the book. You focus on the resilience of Native people in the country, but you also tell the stories of what happened to Native people in this country after Wounded Knee. And it's an ugly, ugly history. I mean, our, our government continued after that point to really subjugate people in, in so many ways. I mean, it was 34 years before Native people were given citizenship after that, which is a, you know, is a fact that I think many people are unaware of thinking about the people who were here before the settlers not even being allowed to be citizens of this country. Of course, it took them a long time to be granted personhood as well. Um, it's important 
to share that history? I mean, I think that it's a history that a lot of people don't know about. Was it difficult for you to find a balance between telling those stories? Again, the atrocities, the unfair laws, the family separation, the stories of the the boarding schools and and all of that. Was it hard for you to find a, a balance to also share these stories of resilience? I don't think so. I mean, I don't remember it being difficult to, to find balance, whatever that is. Um, I was really, I wasn't interested in writing a laundry list of abuse. Um, we've read that, we've heard that story before. Um, and I wasn't interested in writing a story of hope, which is just the other side of the tragic coin. Um, I was really clear with myself that that I, the way I see history and the way I see our, our place in it, you know, I don't see history as merely the sum of the things that native people have managed to survive. I've always understood myself and my family and, and my tribe and by extension tribes across the country as being active participants in shaping their own history, not always from positions of power, not always making our history with tools of our own choosing, but, but making it nonetheless. And so, so it wasn't hard at all to find balance. I mean, I, I knew I didn't want to write the same old tragic tale because the problem isn't just that we don't have the right names and the right dates. The problem, I don't, didn't want to write a, a counter history mm-hmm. um, with just different information. The problem is that the way that people understand n- natives and the way we often understand ourselves is only through the tragic lens. Tragic narrative is the only narrative used to tell the story of Native American life. And so I didn't need to just find different facts and different figures. I needed to find a new narrative. Um, and the, the opposite of tragedy is not hope. The opposite of tragedy is, is context and texture and complication Tragedy just turns us into into numbers and statistics. Um, so the opposite of that is creating and writing a history, I guess, like my fiction that includes, you know, the rich, complex, counterintuitive contours and textures and layers of 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 real life. And so it wasn't hard to do that um, because. I spent the better part of many years traveling around and talking to people who were alive, learning about them, hearing their stories, um, and including those in the book. Did you talk to your family also about writing this history? Was this something that you turned to them for? Um, less than than my previous book of nonfiction, which is um, called Res Life which was about what Indian reservations are and why they exist and where they're going and um, what they mean. When I started writing that book, I had never written nonfiction before and I didn't know how to do it. I was an awkward interviewer. I, uh, I was shy. Uh, I didn't like talking to people or I liked talking to them, but I was uncomfortable doing it. And so I, I was learning how to write Res Life while I was writing it. By the time I turned my attention to the heartbeat of wounded knee, I think I was better at it. And I was a little more secure in, in myself and in my method. And I left my family alone with the exception of a couple people. Um, I left them alone largely in the writing of that book. And I think they were pretty happy about that. 
Well, we are going to have to take a short break, but we'll be back in just a few minutes to talk more. David Troyer is the author of the new book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the present. It is a history of Native American people. And yes, it does talk about the atrocities, the unfair laws and just incredible obstacles that have been put in the way of Native people in this country. But it focuses on the resilience and resourcefulness of modern Native people who have survived and managed to maintain cultures against all those odds. And we will talk more in just a moment. I'm Charity Nebbe. You're listening to an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. My guest this hour is David Troyer. He is the author of the new book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. And in his book, he tells the history of indigenous people in this country and focuses on the resilience of people who have survived against all odds and also managed to maintain cultures uh, in the face of a government that was really focused on destroying those cultures. Uh, Let's talk, uh, you you break the book down really into uh, different chunks of time. And I want to start with the period of time during World War One and World War Two, a period of time you call the fighting life. I mean, for so many Native people, the opportunity to join the armed services to fight in World War One and World War Two really was an opportunity, although, uh, of course, they, they faced discrimination um, in in that act as well. But did that, in a way, help modern Native people really form an identity? Um, I don't know if it helped Native people form an identity exactly, although I'm sure it did in some way. But um, Native, Native American soldiers were not put in segregated units. Um, Native American soldiers, like a lot of Latinos, were in integrated units, unlike African American soldiers in the First World War and the Second World War. Um, And one of the ironies was that a lot of Native soldiers, particularly in the First World War, um, came into service at higher ranks and with better pay than their non-Native peers because they'd received vocational training in uh, at boarding school, and uh, but that experience must have done a lot for for Native American people who found themselves working and fighting alongside many other different kinds of people from across America, and understood themselves as being Native or tribal on one hand, but also understood themselves as being American in in really fundamental ways. 
Um, my grandfather was a, a World War II vet. My father's mother, he, he joined up and he fought in Normandy on D-Day and then subsequently in the Ardennes in the Battle of the Bulge. And he said it was the worst time of his life. He said he's never been more scared or, or more isolated or more miserable. Uh, he did not enjoy being a soldier, although he did enjoy serving his tribe and his country. Native people enrolled or enlisted in the military at higher percentages than was it any other group? I mean, this that's true and than any other group of Americans. That's remarkable. More Native American people, yes, volunteered uh, in, in every conflict that America has fought since the Revolutionary War. Why do you think we've, that is? We've, um, it's complicated. You know, on, on, one hand, on one hand, America has done its best to destroy Native communities. And on the other hand... This country encompasses and encloses our tribal homelands. And by protecting the country, we protect them too. So it's not merely a matter of Stockholm Syndrome or, or something like that. It's complicated. But that's one of the things I was trying to get at in the book, that, that Native people are many things. We're, we're much more than eternal sufferers tucked away in some dusty corner of the American landscape, there only to remind the country of its, of its sins. We've been making this country as much as anybody else. I think a lot of people have heard of the code talkers in World War II, people who use their native languages to communicate, and, and therefore they, it was an unbreakable code for the Axis forces. Um, you write about a number of other acts of heroism during these different conflicts, but also really the reputation almost. I mean, in, in so many ways throughout modern history, we fetishize Native American people those of us on the outside who admire the culture or, or, you know, something like that, we love to tell these tales. And really that tale of the Indian warrior was something that really grew in World War II, partially because so many Native American people were put on the front lines. Well, that's right, especially in the First World War. The commanding officers had many incredible things to say about the American Indian soldiers uh, in their units and, and companies and so on. They said, you know, if they had to go over the top, they would go first. And, and, and my response is, well, you, you put them in front, so of course they went first. And so it was a combination of things. Could it be argued that the American Indian men and women who volunteered in the First and Second World War were, for, for tribal and cultural reasons, keen on combat and, and brave and culturally at least wired that way, perhaps, was it also that, that the United States military was, was racist and thought less of their, their soldiers of color and so made them go first because more of them would die and they didn't care as much? That's also probably true. After World War II, which seems like if, uh, if we want to you know, believe in 
justice seems like a time when Native people would be rewarded for incredible service and and a, a moment to move forward. There's a period you write about from 1945 to 1970 that, that you call termination and relocation. And these are some government policies that a lot of us probably don't know very much about. And some of them were well-meaning and some of them were not well-meaning, but really in many ways further broke up the tribal groups that had managed to exist for so long. What was going on during that time? Right. So after the Second World War, when when American Indian people were such a big part of the war effort and the effort at home, my grandmother, for example, moved from Leech Lake Reservation down to Austin, Minnesota, I think, and worked in the Jolly Green Giant factory, as well as a Maraschino Cherry factory during the war. And uh, after all of that, it's, it's as though no good deed goes unpunished because the government decided, well, American Indians can get with the program, quote unquote. They can, they can join the melting pot. And, uh, and so the government embarked on a quasi well-meaning program of termination that, that really what's holding Native people back are reservations. It's holding them back from f- becoming property owners and joining the mainstream and, and working into the middle class. And it's holding them back geographically because it sticks them in areas where there's no employment and no industry. What we should do to help Indian people is to terminate reservations and relocate Native people to cities. Of course, it would have been best had the government actually worked with and in consultation with tribal governments and communities and asked them what they wanted. That doesn't seem to have occurred to the patriarchal, yet perhaps well-meaning government officials who were in charge right. of it's termination a, it's and relocation. It's a mistake that our government made over and over again. And, and, and well-meaning, right, And well-meaning <laughs> activists also have made that mistake um, many exactly. times over the years. And, right. And so um, the government started terminating reservations and then and dispersing them. Just basically you know, a reservation would exist and then it exists no more. And then Native people were encouraged through federal programs to move to cities where it was promised they would have health care and employment opportunities and jobs training and access to education. Sometimes those things materialized and sometimes more often they didn't. And yet we found ways to bring – so there are lots of Native people who moved to cities and it wasn't as though they stopped being Native by any stretch. They formed Native communities in places like Minneapolis and Chicago and Oakland – And they moved back and forth between city and reservation, and they brought a lot of uh, the the tribe culturally and and intellectually and politically speaking into cities. And then when they went back to reservations, they brought a lot of the city and modernity back to reservations. And so this this had this unintended side effect of of strengthening and modernizing um, all of us. So as with anything... As the government tries to, to play with our future, uh, we play with it too and, and change it and modify it and um, remain strong. In the 1970s, there was, a, uh, obviously there were many social movements, late 1960s, 1970s. We saw a lot of activism. And this is a time when 
Native activism also became a lot more common, and we saw Native people advocating for themselves. Uh, Tell me what was going on during that time. Right. So one of the other side effects of of termination and, and relocation was that many of the Native people who who moved to cities, especially the young people, or who maybe grew up there in part, uh, formed these these pan-Indian intertribal um, connections because you had Native people from many different tribes all living in the same parts of Minneapolis and Chicago and Cleveland and New York and Oakland and Denver. And uh, they also lived alongside and worked with and learned from African-American communities and and borrowed a kind of will to protest from the civil rights movement, from the Black Panthers, which is a more militant expression of the civil rights movement, but it was about civil rights nonetheless, and formed their own, their own organizations, starting with, with student organizations in the 50s, and then Red Power in the 60s, and then the American Indian movement in the late 60s and early 1970s. And these American Indian civil rights movements were became really good at engaging in highly symbolic actions like takeovers and protests that captured the national attention in good ways and in also some destructive ways, I think, ultimately. But they were really successful at drawing the nation's attention to our continued existence and for the longstanding debt the government owes Native people um, insofar as the government has broken many, if not all, of its treaties with us. Talking to people who, uh, you know, were living during that time and old enough to remember what was going on during that time, you were not old enough to remember much of that, were you? No, I wasn't. Okay. I was born the same year D. Brown's book was published. <laughs> all right. So talking to people who were aware during that time, did that change how they felt about being Native American? I think so. Uh, a lot of people talk about as as destructive in many ways as the American Indian movement was. And, and when I say that, I, I mean a lot of the leadership, not so much the rank and file. But as destructive as it, as it was in many ways, a lot of people which, talk which about... Which was common in many of the, the countercultural right. movements of that time, not just the Native American ones. I mean, right, people, right, right, people right. with power, there, there's the saying about power corrupting, and, and we see it over and over again. So Exactly. Uh, but, but, but a lot of people talk about, about one of the side effects of, of being involved with or, or being in contact with the American Indian movement was that you had these people who were unapologetically proud to be native who who made no excuses for being indian and being alive and being strong and being quite sassy and my mom talked about that she said yeah you know when i was growing up in the in the 50s in the 60s there was a saying back home like oh don't be so indianish you know, which was, and being Indianish was being, I don't know, apologetic and and embarrassed and, and meek. And AIM gave people an opportunity to be, to claim really strongly, to make very strong claims for who they are 
and where they are and what they want. And that was that was very new. I'm talking with David Troyer. He is the author of the book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. And you're welcome to join our conversation. If this is part of your history, we'd love to hear from you. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. You can also send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And we did hear from Linda, who's from Tama, Iowa, and she is Native American herself. And she was listening to us talk about the uh, Indian warriors, the the pe- so many Native American people went off to war, enlisted at higher numbers than any other group. And she just wanted to say that she felt in that context that this is our country. And of course, they served. It was a no brainer for Native Americans to to enlist and to fight in those wars. Is that a feeling? And she was very passionate about that. Is that a feeling that you heard echoed with people that you talked to? Oh, absolutely. Was it, Her name was Linda? Yeah. And I'm guessing she's Meskwaki if she's from Tama. And a lot of people from Meskwaki Nation enlisted. And it's a small community. And I think she's 100% right. That's what you hear American Indian veterans say all the time. This is my country. This is my land. Um, there was for many Native veterans that I've talked to or just heard and hung out with socially over the years, there is absolutely no contradiction between being Native and serving in the uh, United States Armed Forces. No contradiction whatsoever. They are very, very proud of having served this country. During the 1970s, there were so many important things that took place. One of them, uh, in 1976, in Iowa, the Iowa Burial Protection Act of 1976 was passed. And that was the direct result of Native American activism uh, because of a, a grave that had been exhumed and all of the white settlers' bodies had been reburied somewhere else, whereas the Native American bodies that were also part of of this graveyard were sent um, to archaeologists instead of reburied. Um, So there were... There were some really strong, powerful movements that were taking place during the 70s. And using the courts was something that that seemed to be a growing approach for Native people. Yeah, but Native people have been using the courts since the early 19th century. They just, (laughs) yes, you you tell some amazing stories about that. Yeah, yeah. For instance, I mean, when the state of Georgia and President Andrew Jackson wanted to remove the five civilized tribes from the southeastern United States in the early part of the 19th century, the tribes filed uh, in court. And their case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in their favor. It didn't prevent Jackson from ultimately removing them and, and marching them to what was then Indian territories. But Native people have been using the courts for centuries. And what's crazy is that is that in the 1970s, 1980s, and into the 90s, the United States Supreme Court heard more cases about federal Indian law than it did any other genre of law, as far as I understand it. We're going to have to take another short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking to David Troyer, author of The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm talking with David Troyer this hour. He's the author of The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. And he focuses on the resilience and resourcefulness of modern Native people and a resurgence in pride in culture that has been taking place over the decades. And, uh, David, I want to talk about casinos because I think uh, that's an important part of the conversation these days. Your... um, your story of how it came became possible for tribes to have their own casinos is a fascinating story, and I recommend that anybody read it. But I want to talk, I mean, first of all, when you said, okay, we're going to talk about casinos, you started with a bullet point. Um, <laughs> so I mean, yeah. this is something that obviously there are lots and lots of misconceptions about. A lot of people have formed opinions about Native American casinos. But how have casinos really transformed native culture? Well, I don't know that casinos have transformed native culture exactly. They are a big new presence, physical and otherwise, in the native landscape and in the American landscape and over the past 30 years or so. Um, but tribes have always had the right. We had the right before non-native people showed up in North America to gamble, and we did. Gambling has been a big part of many different Native cultures. There was only just a, a period of, of time when all of us mistakenly assumed that the government had had prevented it or that it was up to the government to give us permission to do it. But that's a right that we reserved, that, that we had pre-existing before colonization, and it's a right we retained during that process and a right we've retained Um, all this time. And it took a court case that came out of a a tax bill on a trailer in in the 1970s. Right, like a $145 tax bill. $147 tax bill on on Helen Bryan Johnson's trailer in Squaw Lake, Minnesota, on my reservation of Leech Lake, that went all the way to the Supreme Court. It took that case to open people's eyes to this existing right that we'd always retained. Um, But, you know, casinos have affected life of course they have. They're, it's a new kind of revenue. It's a new kind of revenue stream. It's put non-Native and Native people into contact as, as consumers, but also as co-workers in, in casino operations. It's changed a lot of things. But when people always ask, you know, are casinos bad for Indian culture? I always answer with questions. I said, well, is Microsoft bad for white culture? <laughs> they said, well, don't you think that, that um, you know, that it's 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 you know it's damaging native cultures i said well do you think that apple is damaging polish culture the answer to to my counter question should be well it's a mixed bag corporations have done many things have they affected things sure have they affected things in good ways in in some cases have they affected things in bad ways sure in some cases and casinos are no different than that you uh you include you mentioned helen brian johnson you include her address in the book, <laughs> so, <laughs> advocating yes. that everybody should send her a dollar or two. She said uh, her, her quote was, uh, if we did so much, maybe if every Indian in Minnesota sent us a dollar, we'd be rich. And you said, I think everybody right. should. 
Helen, I interviewed her and she was included in my last book, Res Life. And when I was talking to her, she was joking. I said, well, everyone sent me a dollar. Everyone whose life I affected by sticking to my guns and seeing this, my tax bill through the courts, you know, I changed everyone's lives. And if everyone sent me a dollar, maybe I still wouldn't be poor. I said, well, we should put that in the book. She goes, you go ahead. I said, can I put your address in the book? She says, I don't care. And so, <laughs> and so I hear from Helen from time to time through her daughter, Lynn, and Lynn says, She'll write me and she'll say, yeah, so so some French guy sent her $10 or <laughs> she keeps getting dollars, like dollar bills in envelopes in the mail. Not a lot of them, but it, it, it makes her happy Good. Uh, to, that she's thought of. And so I, I asked her if I could put her in this book, too. She said, of course, go ahead. So, so, I did. <laughs> so one of the things that that changed with the tribal casinos is that. There were a lot of people that felt that they had a lot to gain from being enrolled in tribes. And there were tribes who didn't necessarily want everybody to be enrolled in tribes because, of course, I mean, we're talking about money here. And so that brings up some really difficult subjects because, of course, the United States government had been for many years trying to decide who was Indian and who wasn't Indian. And now tribes were faced with that challenge as well. Uh, tell me, tell me more about this. I mean, it's, it's such a difficult subject. Right. I mean, I, there's a distinction that I always have to make and that, that whether you're culturally native, whether you can, whether you identify as native legitimately or otherwise is a matter of many things, your upbringing, your, your culture that you inherit, your, your family, kinship, geography, all of the language, all of religion, all of those things. But when we talk about tribal enrollment, tribal enrollment has nothing to do with any of those things. Tribal enrollment, and this is based on a system foisted on us by the federal government, is based on blood quantum and descent. It's a matter of blood only. And you know, it's a cynical system. The United States government instituted the system and imposed it on us because they, they wanted to get out of the, the Indian business. They wanted to be done with their obligations to us. One way to be done with us is to institute blood quantum laws, and then we would over time breed ourselves out of existence. We would cease to be officially and legally native, and so the government wouldn't have to deal with us anymore. So along come casinos, and all of a sudden, it's, it's really good to be enrolled. And many tribes have started doing the U.S. government's dirty work for it by disenrolling their own citizens. And I agree with this lawyer from, from Seattle named Gabe Galanda. And Gabe has said that disenrollment, which is affecting tens of thousands of Native people across the country, and I believe David Wilkins at the University of Minnesota uh, Lumbee scholar is also working on this issue of disenrollment. But Gabe has said that disenrollment is the single greatest threat to tribal sovereignty um, out in the world today. And, and I tend to agree with him. The government tried to destroy us by imposing these bizarre blood quantum laws, which aren't necessarily a part of our cultures or our understandings of ourselves. And now we're, we're not only accepting those definitions, but we're one-upping the government by kicking people off the rolls. A lot of times it has to do with greed. Small tribal communities with big casinos want to keep the tribe small so that more money flows to fewer people. But in, in some cases, disenrollment is happening 
in tribes that don't have casinos, or if they do, they're not making much money at all. And it has everything to do with a kind of cultural insecurity. And my position is that our populations are growing. There were 200,000 native people, according to the U.S. Census, around the turn of the century, around 1900. Now there are over 3 million. But we're still not so strong that we can afford to destroy ourselves and, and reduce our numbers by kicking people off the rolls and disenfranchising them. I think there's strength in numbers, not strength in, um, in that kind of crude and reductive and mean kind of behavior. Toward the end of your book, you write about individuals. Uh, you write about Sean Sherman, who calls himself the sous chef. We've had him on this show a couple of times. Uh, really, he's amazing. He's a really incredible man and in reviving indigenous cuisine. Um, you write about a number of other people here on Talk of Iowa. We've had some really remarkable Iowans on the show. We talked about the um, Red Earth Running Company, which is a, a native identity running company. Dirk Whitebreast is the founder of it, and he's a member of the Meskwaki Nation. I've also talked to Shelley Buffalo, another member of the Meskwaki Nation, uh, about starting her Jingle Dress Society. And, you know, so it's the, reading your stories, it seems like there are so many individuals who are doing so much to take pride in their indigenous culture and, and share it with others. So many of these movements are very welcoming. And I'm you also write, of course, about the protests at Standing Rock, a moment where, although um, in the end the, the protests were unsuccessful, but there was this great coalescence around a common cause and, again, very much in the public eye. What do you feel about this moment in time? And since you published your book, I mean, there have been some, some really remarkable things that have happened as well, including uh, two members of Congress who are indigenous people. So tell me, tell me what you're feeling about this moment in time. I'm feeling that it's a really good time to be Indian. There's so many amazing people doing so many different amazing things in all the ways you just enumerated at Standing Rock, which, which was unsuccessful in in terms of specifically stopping that particular pipeline from crossing in that particular place. But that protest has been phenomenally successful in raising the issue of, of dependence on, on fossil fuels and has stopped pipelines in different places across the country. And before the, the Standing Rock protest, I think my tribe had, had agreed to a certain number of leases and allowed pipelines, multiple pipelines to cross my reservation. But after Standing Rock, you couldn't hope to stay in tribal office if you in any way supported pipelines and pipeline expansion. So Standing Rock was successful in a lot of different ways. But I also think of individuals like Sarah Agaton House is a Ojibwe woman from Fonchlac Reservation in Minnesota. And she's reviving um, this you know, very old-fashioned, old-school uh, lifestyle of, of combination of diet and, and running. And she runs with other Native women, and she's actually running in the weather that you all are having right now. I think I saw on Facebook that she ran yesterday in, at Fond du Lac, and it was 11 below zero. <sighs> and for her, reviving that kind of tradition of, of Indian running is a way of 
expressing a traditional value as a way of tackling modern problems, like sedentary lifestyle, the ways in which we it, we retreat into our technology and devices, and this is a way to reconnect with people and with a place. Um, for her, running is a traditional thing that is solving modern problems, and, and we see that reflected over and over again in in the efforts of so many different fascinating people. So yeah, it's a good time to be native. Well, and you write about the the period when um, the long period when children were being taken from their homes and sent to these Indian boarding schools as a, a sort of a strange time because it brought so many native people together across tribes. We have something similar now because of social media in all of right. the stories that you write about modern native people you point to how social media has helped them come together that's a pretty powerful force right now it is and and somebody told me someone who worked for the indian health service told me that and i couldn't verify these statistics he told me that native people use social media at a rate that's something like 30 percent higher than than every other group and that smartphones are used by native people at some other sort of ridiculous level, much higher than anyone else. And he said, well, look, native people still, you know, we have, we have housing problems. People will couch surf and they'll move in with cousins and uncles and aunts and they'll move someplace else. We don't have laptops. We don't have desktops. Smartphones are for many native people. It's their only computer. And they use social media as a way of connecting. And what better way, I thought, after listening to him speak, for people who live in geographically dispersed places who are oftentimes poor, who oftentimes lack access to infrastructure and capital and even transportation, what better way for people who are spread out and isolated from one another to connect? And so native Twitter and native Facebook and native Instagram, those are rich and vibrant places for native people to connect, to find strength to find common cause. And it's it's pretty incredible. What do you want Native people who read your book to take away from it? I want, I want so many things. I, I want us, because I think we do this too. I want us to rethink the stories we use to tell our own lives. I want us to wean ourselves from dependence on the tragic narrative in which we're cast as victims. I want us to think more complexly with more nuance and more imagination about where we've been, what we've been doing, and, and what we can do. I really feel I'm too much of a professor, too much of a writer to feel otherwise. I feel that words shape the world. It's not, it's it, words and stories shape how we see the world, and as such, they shape what kinds of futures we can imagine. And so I want us to be creative and I want us to be hardworking and I want us to try really hard to imagine our story differently so we can imagine our, our futures differently. This is the book that you needed back in 1992. Oh, it is. This is the book I needed. And, uh, and now I have it, at least for myself. And I, I feel pretty good about it. Well, I hope many other people feel like this is the book they need too. What about the rest of us? 
non-Indigenous people. What do you want us to take away from reading this? Well, it, and this is that this isn't just audience specific. It's it, this is for Native and non-Native people alike. But there's this tendency to think of Native people as in America, but not of it. And there's a tendency to to th- sort of peer in on our lives and to read about us as a kind of liberal act or as a kind of community service. And and that's appreciated to to an extent. Don't get me wrong. But I really think, I really believe that you can't take America's temperature. You can't understand this country without thinking about us. America has since the beginning been at war with itself. I mean, since the 18th century. There have been competing impulses in the American character and in the American experiment. On one hand, we've seen America act in the, in the meanest and cruelest and most selfish and self-interested ways around the world and domestically. And on the other hand, America's ideals, its, its stated ideals and its founding documents are among the most inclusive and, and hopeful in the world. And I think there's been a war between those two forces, and we've been at the center of that since the beginning. So if you want to understand that conflict, if you want to understand this country, you have to think about us. David Troyer, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And hey, stay warm. (laughs) We'll try. David Troyer is the author of The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the present. He is Ojibwe, originally from Minnesota. Talk of Iowa is a production of Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. Thanks for listening.